Welcome to the Burnout Recovery Podcast, a guiding resource dedicated to healthcare professionals on their journey to overcoming burnout. Spearheaded by Dr. Joe Braid, a certified professional coach and rehabilitation physician. This podcast offers practical strategies through expert interviews and personal resilience stories, providing invaluable tools for navigating professional challenges while prioritizing well-being. Regardless of your role in healthcare, this podcast acknowledges the toll of your work on your overall health and is committed to supporting your recovery from burnout and fostering a fulfilling, sustainable career. So if you're ready to begin a transformative journey, join us for each new episode. Together, we'll navigate challenges, celebrate successes, and build a supportive community of healthcare professionals. Hello and welcome back to the Burnout Recovery Podcast. Today, I am delighted to have another guest on the show today. I have got Dr. Ben Bravery talking with us today. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, you're so welcome. So, Ben um, has a really interesting um, story that he's going to share with us on the podcast today. He's had definitely a portfolio career with um, a career before medicine, um, a significant life event, and then going into into medicine um, since then. So I won't spoil any of what's um, going to come and I'll let Ben tell it in his words. Um, ben, please tell us a bit more about yourself as we open the podcast today. Well, uh, so how far back would you like to go, Dr. Joe? Well, yeah, I guess um, you were living in China, I understand. You trained as a zoologist and also in science communication. Um, what took you to China? Yeah. Okay. So we're starting around there. Oh, that's awesome. That's my favorite space. That's my favorite point to start. Um, yeah. So I had this whole other life before medicine where I was a zoologist. Um, and most people find it disappointing to learn that I, um, that means I don't work in zoos. Um, because that's their kind of, you know, it's got zoo in it and that's the cool bit of animals. Um, but I was, uh, kind of a research zoologists so you know observing wildlife and caring about how wildlife interact with their environments and um that led to uh, a, a small <laughs> career in um environmental policy in canberra which um led me to become a little disappointed in the way we do see environments and and how to protect them it felt a little bit like i was rubber stamping um, major developments and destruction rather than actually, you know, signing up to save ecosystems and, and the critters that live in them. And I kind of thought I need a totally different approach. So then I did some postgrad work in science communication at ANU. Um, and as a part of that, you join a thing called the Science Circus, where you um, load up this huge semi trailer at Questacon, the National Science Center fill it with science um, toys and then travel around the country sharing science passion with kids and school teachers and the public. And I did that because I wanted to learn new ways to talk to people about science and the environment and how to protect it. And then once that finished, I thought I need to go and apply these skills in a pretty big way. So I went to China where, you know, humans and wildlife are really in intense conflict that's a huge country with a lot of people and not much resources. So that's how I ended up in China. And I spent a year in southern China looking after an endangered deer. And then when that project wrapped, I moved to Beijing and got a job with the Chinese Academy of Sciences. 
at the Institute of Zoology running um, a peer-reviewed journal and helping with some communications for an international society of zoologists. And that was around 2007, 2008. And I ended up spending about four years in China altogether, eventually kind of seeing this niche open up. This was after the Olympics, you might remember. And China was really um, energetic and ambitious and open looking. And it was um, funding all kinds of things, you know, including science, which it wanted to develop in a huge way. And there was a niche opening up to help Chinese researchers communicate their research in English internationally. And, you know, being a zoologist, I mainly um, attracted other zoologists. And um, in a weird quirk of the kind of fate, I ended up recruiting a lot of giant panda researchers, um, which made me somewhat of a, a, not an expert, but certainly knowledgeable about giant pandas because I was able to put all this different um, information together from all these different labs that weren't necessarily talking with each other, but I was seeing all this work and helping all these researchers communicate this work. So, gosh, it was exciting. Um, you know, giant pandas are amazing. I'm living in Beijing. Um, it's post-Olympics. I'm an expat there. I fell in love. Uh, I met my now wife, um, Sana, who was a journalist in a radio station. Weirdly, that's also because of giant pandas. Um, because I went into the radio station to do an interview about them and she was a producer at the radio station. So, yeah, I owe, I owe a lot to the giant panda. Okay, so we've got to this point in your life, in your 20s, you're living the dream, enjoying life, building your own business in China, researching the beautiful panda in China, and then there is a significant life event that happens. So tell us about what happened uh, then and what you chose to do further to that. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it was a significant life event. It was a, you know, it's easily, it's easy to think back on it as just one thing, but really, you know, it, it, it was a thing that developed as, as major illness often does. It was a thing that developed slowly and if I'm honest, you know, that there were symptoms probably for maybe at least six months. Yeah, and okay. That, they were things like um, constipation and diarrhea, abdominal cramping, nausea. You know, but I was living in China, Joe. I'm, I'm, I'm smack bang in the middle of Beijing. Um, I love eating and I don't care what the restaurant looks like. And so... I often would find myself with an upset tummy, <laughs> you know, or an yeah. upset bum. Uh, we know yeah. one of our favorite pastimes as expats in Beijing was to compare those stories, um, <laughs> both <laughs> oh the gosh. dining experience and what happened afterwards. But, yeah. uh, it, it, you know, and then it, it got harder to explain away, you know. Mm -hmm. it, this was no longer a case of dodgy dumplings, rotten rice. This was... Mm something inside me and yeah. when I started to bleed from, you know, my bum and, and I'd go to the toilet and I'd notice these little bits of blood, I, I, I did what you do at 28, uh, I put those things into Google and without a family history of anything sinister mm. um, with those non-specific symptoms, you know, I, I diagnosed myself with hemorrhoids because- yeah, okay. You know, most of the time at that age, blood from down there is something like a hemorrhoid mm. or a fissure or something like that. And so, 
that's why I hung on to that for a little while. And then I started to lose weight and mm-hmm. I got night sweats and mm-hmm. I grew anemic and I fainted. Yeah, and right. it, was, it was time for me to accept that, you know, something quite serious was unfolding inside me. And little, you know, people around me knew little pieces of it, but no one had the full, the full story. I, you know, I kind of kept that horror for myself. And, and then I had this particularly bad bleed, um, you know, after a bowel movement. Mm. And um, it, it looked horrible and I was really quite frightened. And I decided then just to tell someone <laughs> about everything that was happening. You know, Sana knew, my, you know, my wife or my girlfriend mm. at the time, she knew about the night sweats, you know, because we were laying next to each other. The, the, the colleague I was working with when I fainted, you know, knew about that part. Um, people sometimes knew about the pain or the cramping. But- it was time to tell someone and I told my mum um, okay. and I told her everything. And um, within a few seconds of hearing this, she said that I needed a colonoscopy. And um, I don't want you to think that, Joe. that's because she's got the confidence of a doctor. She doesn't, <laughs> but she's, she's got the confidence of a hypochondriac. And, um, and she's got this weird obsession with colonoscopies. Okay. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, she, she enjoys them. And she's had a lot of them in the private sector and she always gets a clean tick, but mm-hmm. that doesn't stop her having more. And so, she's so good at organizing them that she'd organized yeah. for me to have one while I was still in Beijing. Wow. Um, I was due to come back to Melbourne just for a couple of days to get a, a new visa and go back. And she'd organized to, for me to get a referral to a gastroenterologist to have a colonoscopy. She'd got the mm-hmm. prep. Um, you know, she's a master at this. And so, I, I arrive in Melbourne. She's basically got the prep at the airport with her. Yeah. She, gu- she guides me through <laughs> it. I have the colonoscopy and uh, they, fa- they find a whopping big tumor in the oh. sigmoid. And my first question obviously was what the hell is a sigmoid? And mm-hmm. I learned that it's a part of the large bowel and that there was a big tumor there and they couldn't get the adult scope through. They had to retract and use the pediatric scope and it was ulcerated and it explained a lot of my bleeding and the size explained a lot of my cramping and constipation. And then, you know, very quickly the race is on when you get cancer at that age, particularly bowel cancer, to go looking for other tumors mm-hmm. because what, what I didn't know and I didn't appreciate obviously not being health trained was that people who get early onset bowel cancer tend to present later. And okay. they tend to present later in the disease for the exact reasons I've described. They're doing yoga and they're jogging and they're eating fiber and there's no family history and they've got a bit of pain. Mm. So it tends to get, you know, explained away by other things. I ended up being staged um, 3C. So mm-hmm. I had a big tumor that had breached one part of the bowel and attached itself to a piece of the bowel next door and it was kind of making its way up toward my bladder. It had wrapped around a vas deferens. It was, it was nasty. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I thankfully just had the one tumor. Okay. Um, it hadn't yeah. spread, but there, there was probably a lymph node that was dodgy nearby. Um, and that meant being young and having a significant cancer that I needed all the therapies. Right. So I had radiation therapy. I had an ultra-low anterior resection, a really large laparotomy, hours mm-hmm. and hours in theater. Then I had a uh, lupuleostomy to let the bowel heal for a year. And while mm-hmm. it was healing, I started um, post-operative chemotherapy. And at the end of all that, um, I was diagnosed with bilateral PE, which often oh happens gosh. in people undergoing cancer treatment. And then I was um, had to be anticoagulated for a while. 
Mm. I mean, all in all, it was about a year and a half, um, which was huge because I had never really been sick in a big way. Mm. And I had to learn how to navigate this health system and be a patient. Yeah. And at the end of it, you kind of back, back into the world, which the doctors are all really happy about, obviously, because you're alive. But I found um, a bit confronting because yeah. you know, everything had gone. So Beijing was a distant memory. The business folded. Mm-hmm. All my, my apartment still had stuff in it there. Right. I, uh, you know, Sana had decided to come to Australia with me after only five months together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she, she was the, the only constant. The career I was building was over. We'd burnt through all our savings. So I basically had to start again. And, and in a rush, yeah. I did do that. I went and got a job in science communication. And after about six months, it just didn't seem to be gelling. I changed jobs. Same thing mm. happened after six months. And then I did this weird thing and I just decided to take a whole year off, which is a luxury, I know. Um, but I think I needed to let cancer almost catch up with me. You know, when, when you get cancer at that age and you mm. go on and you watch, you go and watch your friends get engaged and get promoted and start to s- make families and you, you kind of just stuck. I didn't know if I was going to be alive five years, mm. you know, like mm. stage three odds are almost flipping a coin. Really? And I was sick for a lot of it and I didn't know when I was going to feel better. I felt this, I've got to get, I've got to get back into life. You know, I was 29, about yeah. to hit 30. I got to go and, and I still had all that ambition and all that energy. It hadn't gone anywhere. Mm. But it caught up with me and I needed to think about what to do now. And I decided, strangely, <laughs> to go and become a doctor. And it wasn't, that wasn't a light bulb moment by any stretch. That was just this accumulation of reflection and looking at my old diaries. And I'd, I'd started a blog about the science of bowel cancer while I was sick. And it, was, it all kind of fell into place. And one day I thought, you know, I want to go back into healthcare, but not as a patient. And I wanted to do that for two reasons. The first reason was to give back. I was so, so grateful for the care, Mm. the the technical care, the parts of it that were deeply kind. It was beautiful and I was alive and I was very grateful for that. And in the Australian system, it didn't cost me anything. Yeah. So there was that. The second part of that, which is the other side of that coin, is that there were a few things I wanted to fix. <laughs> there was a few things I felt could be done a little bit better. You know, lots of points in my care, I'd felt like a problem and not a person. Okay. I felt like mm. that, you know, the system had been good at providing high quality evidence-based care, but not caring. Mm. And I thought, go go to med school learn the language, understand illness, and go and heal other people while think, you know, thinking and fixing some of this system stuff along the way. So that's, that's kind of how I got to medicine. And I started um, a graduate degree in, in my early 30s, and mm. now I'm five years out. I'm PGY5. 
Well, what a story, Ben. It's um, it's it's amazing, and thank you for talking through all the details there, and you know that that interesting pause of um, getting through your treatment, getting a, a great outcome, throwing yourself back into the workplace, but now in Australia rather than where you had been setting up your business and work. And then again, sounds like taking another pause to reflect, to ponder, to, I guess, think what next. And um, and it sounds like you did journal along some of the, the way there, mm. um, sort of documenting your journey there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say the word poor. I mean, the way I kind of think about it is, um, you know, cancer, it, it paused everything and I didn't have a choice. And, you know, the, the next step was mine. You know, it was my choice. I, you know, I sometimes quit that the, the step from, you know, normal healthy person to cancer patient was not mine. It was thrust upon me. Yeah. The, the step from cancer patient to doctor was entirely mine. Yeah, right. And, you know, some of it mm. was about getting control and facing fears and, you know, wanting to give back. And it, it was a deliberate process. You know, it, it had mm. to be. It had to be because it was a big deal. It's a big deal to go back and retrain in, in any field. Um, yeah. You know, and it, yeah. it had costs as well. You know, basically I had to sit down with Sana, who was – thank God, still by my side and say, okay, you know that whole cancer thing, how it completely blew up our life. <laughs> I'm, I'm about to blow it up again. <laughs> I'm right, gonna, yeah. I'm going to go and become a student. And, um, you know, I might, I still might need you to work. I'm so sorry and, and support us. And, you know, it may mean things for travel and it may mean things for the amount of time we can spend together. And, mm. you know, and it's, always a, it's a big decision when you mm. go back and do it. And I wanted to, do it for the right reasons and you know i'm still working it out um but you know not a day goes by that um that i regret that pivot i mean it's you know it's just so important to who i am now yeah yeah and it sounds like you've had the support of your girlfriend and now wife alongside you um from from before things changed before the the diagnosis happened and um, I would say that support people are, are so important in in our journeys of life. Absolutely. And, you know, so, something we don't often think about it as a profession um, is the cost on others around us. Mm. You know, medicine is a, it's a collective game. You know, it's a team sport, yeah. both in terms of practicing medicine, you know, despite the fact that it's taught in a highly individual way, um, mm -hmm. it is a team sport. And, you know, being a rehab physician, you know that better than anyone. Mm -hmm. And the, the cost of it, you know, in, interpersonally and socially and psychologically yeah, it is huge. You know, it's no surprise that doctors often end up with other doctors <laughs> because yep. they, they've gone through the same process together that, you know, you, don't, you, you basically cut everyone else out um, because you just, it's a solitary exercise for most of the training. Yeah. It's you, you yeah. in a textbook or you in an iPad and you in a computer. Mm -hmm you in an exam and it's, you know, you just, there's a big social cost and to have people around you um, there for the journey is, is, is so important. You know, it was, it was, at Sana, Sana was as important for my medical degree as she was for cancer, which is a weird thing to say, 
Yeah. Because um, yeah. you know, one's an Ill- one's a major illness and one's training to be a doctor, but they were both very difficult processes. Yeah. And um yeah, yeah she she was just amazing. Do you come from a medical family or a non-medical family? God no. Um no no no. So I'm I'm unusual in the sense that uh there's no doctors in the family. Um I I was the uh, the only second member of my kind of not just immediate family but extended family to finish high school. Mm. Okay. And um, yeah, right. I was the first one to go to university. Uh, I was the first one to live outside Australia. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most of my family are still back where where I grew up in Queensland. You know, it was a, it was um, you know, you either you either you 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 earned or you learnt, and they they were into earning. You know, they were yeah um, busy, um, industrious, uh, working mm-hmm. class people that worked really hard. And the mm. idea was that, you know, you left school as soon as you could, you got a job that um, was reliable and it was loyal and you showed loyalty and you, you got your head down and you worked your way up the chain. This yeah. whole academic idea of going to university and studying animals, you know, it was a, it was a bit foreign yeah. um, to my family. And so, no, I don't I don't come from a line of doctors. My mum thinks she has <laughs> medical knowledge of a doctor um, and she sometimes very cheekily ring me up and tell me or suggest medications I should try. Um, but, but no, that's just um, that's a combination of Oprah and, uh, and Dr. Oz. <laughs> she's, she's not actually health trained. Oh, very good. Well, she was definitely there setting up the right things at the right time when you came off that plane from China. So great that she... Mm has that connection there in Melbourne for you. So I'd love to talk about um, what we talk about in healthcare. We talk about being on the other side in healthcare. So that's when you are a healthcare professional and you um, go in for some treatment or you're on the other side or there's an emergency or you're rushed in or your kid's sick and you're on the other side. So you're uh, watching the cogs, the wheels work of healthcare um, sort of as sometimes as a subject, I guess, or sometimes as an observer, depending on what's going on there. Your experience was that um, I guess you were a, a patient first and then you've, you now are experiencing what it's like on the other side in the flip that um, I'm not so familiar with sort of patient first, then doctor second. Um, what what has, impact has this had on you sort of through all your medical training? Now you're PGY5. Um, how has that impacted you, Ben, by being a patient first for like an extended time, not like three days mm. with a broken XYZ? It's like mm. for much longer that you're involved in multiple different parts of the healthcare mm. system. And now you're you're one of us. I don't know how I'm going to say this. You're in, definitely in the healthcare system. Yeah. You've mastered getting through medical school and well yep. and truly beyond. What What do you bring, I guess, into your um, either your experience as a healthcare professional or into what you put into the system now? I mean, the, the, this this actual question is, and this this point, this concept that you're getting to is is. The reason I wrote the book, right? It's you know I called it the patient doctor because I was, is, and always will be a patient first. I learnt medicine through illness. Mm-hmm. I filtered everything through the eyes of a patient. 
and that that is unusual you know um the, the, there are fantastic books that sit on the same shelf in the bookstores where mine is found um, about doctors chronicling their illnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, When Breath Becomes Air is a yeah. beautiful example. Um, Dr. Kalanithi, you know, getting cancer. Yeah. Um, uh, Henry Marsh, um, you know, has just written his latest book about um, – prostate cancer mm-hmm. um, and the reason that these books are in, uh, are special is because over and over again uh, healthcare workers and they don't always have to be doctors they can be nurses and physios and social workers they realize once something is happening to them that maybe the practice they had and the way they went about things could have been better. Mm. You know, it's like, it's like their eyes are opened for the first time. And yeah, I, I actually find that really frustrating because I think the fact that that's a thing, that that's a transformation that people not only write about, but people gobble up those memoirs. Right, yeah. The, the fact that that's important actually says something quite profound about how we teach healthcare mm. and how we prepare people to become healers. Yeah. I don't think the experience of getting sick should be that profound mm. an effect on your practice because ideally you've always practiced with empathy and compassion and kindness. Mm. Getting sick certainly will make you feel something extra about mm-hmm. illness and healthcare, but it shouldn't fundamentally alter it. And that's what I worked out when I went to med school. I was, first of all, because I don't have a classic doctor origin story, I felt a little out of place. A lot of people came from great schools and, you know, quote unquote, great postcards and postcards, postcodes, mm. um, and they had professionals in the family and they, you know, wore nice clothes and they had private health insurance and all this kind of stuff. Mm. But they also hadn't been sick. And mm. I thought, well, that's okay if medical school then does an awesome job at teaching that. But they don't. They teach a lot about illness but not what it is like to be ill. And mm. I saw over the okay. course of my education the effect of that. I saw cynicism and ego and status evolve and I saw compassion and empathy and communication fall away. Mm. You know, as we pummeled fact after fact after fact and clinical um, decision-making and rigorous structures and all the important stuff that makes a doctor very smart at what they do, Mm. we were losing other parts of them as people. Mm. And I am grateful for my cancer experience because it meant that I couldn't ever afford to lose that. Yeah, I had to hold on to who I was a, as a person because my thinking was, well, what's the point if at the end of this I am a statistic like all the data shows us over decades across all jurisdictions, across all health disciplines, the more education you have, the less compassionate you are, 
The worse yeah. your communication skills, the greater your ego, the greater your cynicism, the less kind you are. I just thought that was a horrible way to end up mm. becoming a healer. What I bring, you know, and, and to, to, t- to update you and other people, like I'm still a patient. Um, the last, my last colonoscopy was not pleasant. I all of a sudden have polyps growing everywhere um, in my colon. And mm. one of them was, you know, um, dysplastic. It was pre-malignant. And mm-hmm. I don't know why. And I am still now on regular colonoscopies. My next one's in a month. Um, okay. I'm still in the system as a patient. And yeah. uh, it's it's like I see myself almost as a, you know, doctor, that uh, as a patient that gets to put on a stethoscope. I can't not feel the patient experience. But that doesn't mean that I don't sometimes forget. You know, the system is engineered in a way that these things are not meant to be a part of our everyday practice. You know, the way mm-hmm. clinics are structured and the way ward rounds are structured and the way we sometimes talk to each other, you know, it's head down, get on with it. Um, rapid history taking, uh, very brief consults, mm. um, you know, annoying families asking questions. The kind of time and compassion and consideration isn't really rewarded. Um, and so yeah. I do, I do have to actively cultivate that stuff. You know, I mm. do have to remember why I got into this and I do have to build that into my, into my practice. I think, you yeah. know, sometimes people say to me that, it's great that you've lived it, you actually get it. But there are lots of pathways to getting it. Mm. You know, you don't you don't have to get sick to get it. I don't for one second advocate that <laughs> you have to be sick to go to medical school and be a doctor. That's just silly. Sure. Yeah. But there's loads of tools, you know, loads of education systems we can use to help people better connect with the patients in a human way, right? Mm-hmm. So we yeah. can drop we can drop some of that professional uh, barrier, we can bridge the gap between what is effectively just two people sitting down or mm. standing up mm. and working out how to heal. So I'm curious, Ben, as to how you were in your cohort of medical students and then going through the early PGY years or postgraduate years that you will have had. And do you think you operated differently? Do you think you did communicate with patients differently because of your lived experience through the healthcare system that most likely barely any of your peers had. Do you think that was already in there earlier on, the empathy, the compassion, the very intentional communication skills that you were mindful of? I do. I do think they were there. I mean, that's not saying I'm an expert in it and that I nail it. Um, I'm continuing to learn, Hmm. Um, which is something doctors are very good at. You know, we're continually trying to be better and and understand things in a more sophisticated way. Um, yeah, I, I think I think I was a bit more deliberate about it. I was definitely more forgiving, right? Mm. I remember sitting in a, um, you know, just just going in to a patient, just having a bit more of a complete understanding of them as a person, and at least yeah. being curious about that. You know, I remember sitting in first year. It was like a, like my second day of medicine. And we were watching a documentary uh, which was filmed in New Zealand about people that wanted to donate their body to medical schools for the purposes of dissection. Mm -hmm. 
And because we would be using, um, you know, human specimens yep. to do that. And they were interviewing a woman who had cancer and she said, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite healthy apart from the cancer. And, and the room burst into laughter. Mm. And I remember thinking, well, what's funny? <laughs> like, I don't, I completely missed the joke. And it was that, well, uh, you know, of course she's not healthy. She's got cancer. You know, is this very like, well, she is, she is cancer. And yeah. the reason I thought that was so odd to me was because I had had cancer and it was not all of me. And for a period yeah. of time, it was everything I focused on. And it was the reason I got up in the morning and it, it certainly bothered me. But I was always more than that. And, you know, it's kind of like that was day two. And what I saw over time was just this increasingly reductionistic view of people mm. as a set of problems, as a problem list or an illness script or, you know, a, a faulty organ or a surgical repair, mm. r less about them, them as people. I definitely tried to lean into that space. I never, <laughs> in you know, terms that got thrown around annoyed me, you know, mm. poor historian. Like, poor historian, you know, doctors label people who don't give them the history in the way they expect it and mm -hmm. the way they've been trained in it as a poor historian. And to me, that felt like they would, one, had just become so preoccupied with their own way of doing things. And two, had forgotten that there's, this is not a robot they're interviewing. Mm. This is a person with complexity. As an intern, I worked in a really busy hospital in Western Sydney. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt the conflict between the care I wanted to provide and the care I could provide. Yeah. Um, I yeah. did small little things where possible, but I wasn't able to systematically provide the kind of care I wanted to. The system wouldn't allow it. And, you know, it's about treating the greatest number of people in the smallest amount of time. Mm. And, yeah. you know, all systems face those trade-offs. I think definitely yeah. I was a bit more mindful with my colleagues, you know, when I heard them talk about patients in a certain way, you know, mm. I remember once in fourth year overhearing a couple of people talk about like, oh, you got to go fill this liver. Uh, it's like in bed 23 and I was like, well, hang on, wait, you know, just remember um, that that's a person mm. and, um, you know, they may not want you to, you, you might be the 10th person that's walked up today and said, can I fill your liver? Mm. And one of them, um, you know, remarked, well, this is a teaching hospital. And I thought, well, yeah, I know, I get that, but you don't have a right to the patient. Mm. It's, it's yeah. what we do is a privilege. And it ju I just felt generally sometimes, you know, there was a real uh, demeaning or depersonalization of the person. Mm. Um, and I think as a someone who almost died and just come out of treatment, that was front of mind for me. It's interesting that you, you give that analogy of hearing that uh, doctors talk about patients like robot as if they're robots. And um, I also wonder sometimes that the system thinks that we are robots as in the healthcare professionals in it and we're sort of… 100%. Yeah, superhuman. I mean, it's… 100%. Yeah. yeah. Mm, mm, that, was, that was the striking thing about crossing over, Joe, was, yeah. was that a lot of the frustrations I had as a patient, I saw seeded right. in the way we teach, incentivize, and cultivate 
the culture and education of healthcare. Mm. And a lot of the frustrations I saw on the other side as a doctor are the similar frustrations to the ones the patients have. Yeah. Uh, both sides are frustrated and often unhappy mm. with the way things are done. And, you know, I, I felt reduced to a problem as a employee of the health system as yeah. much as I have as a patient in the health system. I think yeah, your yeah. observation is spot on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where does this take you to? Because, you know, medicine can be very much sort of like a factory. You know, you do this bit, then that bit, then that bit, then that bit. And I interview a lot of people on here with portfolio careers. And that's fascinating and interesting. And, you know, you've got a portfolio career and your current medical career, I guess, is fairly com- committed to your training in psychiatry at the moment. That's right. Yep. Yep. Where do you see yourself in five years and what are the areas you are passionate about for change in healthcare? I've, I've never been good. This might disappoint you as a coach, but maybe we can do this offline. I've never been very good at um, long-term planning. <laughs> my, okay. my, my, my sister is a coach as well and she's, it's a point of frustration between us because she's big into <laughs> the goals. She's big into goals. Um, I think I, I just, you know, I've, I, you're right. I've got my head down. Um, I'm in a training program. It's five years. I've got two and, two and a bit years left. Mm-hmm. Um, and a bunch of milestones. So that's kind of the immediate goal. Sure. Um, you know, the, the book was never planned. It kind of came about weirdly. Um, and then I thought, yeah, that's, you know, I thought maybe someday, someday I would put all this stuff down and mm. um, didn't imagine it would happen, you know, as a junior doctor. Um, yeah. So then I just, I threw myself into that. I, t- I tend to be opportunistic and reactive. But the difference now, pre and post cancer, is I'm a bit, a bit more careful about mm. what I do with my time, you know, to takes on more meaning when yeah. you've, you know, you've, you've almost lost time. Mm. Um, so, for, you know, in my second year as a registrar, I took a year off um, to care for my son. Right. Um, mm. So, we, we had a baby when I was first year registrar and then um, second year my, my wife was ready to go back to work and, I just thought oh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna take a whole year. I'm gonna take a break in training. I'm gonna slow everything down. It'll mm. mean missing an exam and adding extra years. But I just, you know, I really wanted to do that. Um, yeah. In the next five years, I hope that I'm a consultant. Um, I see myself getting increasingly involved in medical education. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I've got big ideas for how Great. how we should be select selecting med students, which is very controversial, um, how we should be selecting them and then how we should be cultivating their humanity and their skill sets. Mm. Um, yeah. I've got big ideas around getting patients, people with lived experience and illness involved in medical education in a substantial way. Mm. Um, it, I feel like it's very tokenistic. It's still very power-based. Um, I would love to see teachers as professors, you know, I would love, I'd love to see the person with breast cancer giving a lecture next to the radio radiographer or the breast cancer geneticist or the surgeon. Um, Mm. I would love that information to be elevated and tested and examined in the same way that all our other curriculum is. Um, I would, so I see myself kind of working in, I'm definitely in public healthcare. I'm a strong believer in our um, universal system. 
I'm yeah. a strong believer in hospital care. I know that it gets a lot of criticism, but it has a role to play. Sure. Um, and I want to be in it because that's how you change it. Yes. And then, mm. um, you know, I, I hope that uh, I'm still a good dad, um, that I'm still, I try to be, you know, the best husband I can be. Yeah. Um, and that I'm still, I, I, I'm still anchored in a sense of purpose. And I'm increasingly thinking about this as I get further down my career because, you know, I meet a lot of people, um, a lot of young doctors in particular, who seem to be struggling in that space. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're questioning what it means to be a doctor. And I think COVID has just really exacerbated existing tensions yeah. and made people think in a big way about what it is they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I try and stay grounded in in what I'm doing and why. Um, mm. So that's a long way of answering your question. I'm sorry, um, no, but that's great. kind of how I see how I see you know yeah. being in five years time. Yeah, fantastic. No, I love it. It's really comprehensive and insightful on yourself and what you're noticing and others around you as well. Which I don't work much in the hospital system anymore, but I've certainly heard um, rumblings around that as well. Mm-hmm. Just got a few more questions. I want to get your opinion on this. There's no right or wrong answer. I say that in coaching all the time. With (laughs) your lived experience as both a patient and a doctor, what is your opinion on either the patient comes first or look after yourself first as a clinician? Uh, It's a provocative question. Um, And you you know I'm going to be torn. Because I, you know, I, I was very sick, and and now I'm mm. a doctor. Mm. Uh, I've got views views on both of those. Mm. I I think having been a zoologist, right, I see things as ecosystems. Mm. I see the natural interdependence of things, mm-hmm. and the the doctor patient relationship is is a symbiotic one. It, it's a weird thing to think about, right? But for doctors. To flourish hmm. and to be their best and derive purpose, S- someone has to be ill. So something yeah. has to be wrong in someone else. Yeah, and, and that's yeah. a really that's a really interesting thing to think about. Hmm. I also I'm intimately aware now that satisfaction is interconnected. That they're, they're not mutually exclusive entities. You know, in the book, I often wrote about things that I saw try that people tried to roll out. This is good for patients, but it sucked mm-hmm. for doctors. Right. Yeah. And then you roll out things that you think are good for doctors, but they suck for patients. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole point of this wanting a shared understanding of the humanity in this relationship was that, you know, we have to lift both of them up. We have yeah. to do things that nourish and support both of them. I mean, it's really simple. It's you know, you could easily just reduce all this to the the airplane analogy, which is what people use, which is you know, when the oxygen mask drops, you put yours yeah. on before you you help other people, right? And that's sure. often what 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 it gets reduced to. But it, it's a bit for me, it's a bit more complicated than that. And I think the tension that you're hearing or the conflict, and that I can't give such a simple answer is. Because I am both of those, both of those and, things. Yeah, I, I get that in your in your discussion today. Definitely, you have those sort of two identities to yourself mm. in your life, and um, you know, other people lose. Well, 
other people have such a singular identity of being a doctor and there's not much else and they might have done a mm. bunch of different things um, and uh, looked very diverse in their interests and their hobbies, especially on application to medical school and mm. do a few more things through med school. And then, you know, 15 years out, it's really pared back and it's doctoring. Yes. yes. Um, but, yeah, I – and, yeah, you've got – you you can relate to both of those identities in that question there. And um, I'm sure – as a patient, you would definitely you you would likely say the patient comes first, and I'll be putting on my oxygen mask. Maybe whether or not I'm a doctor or I'm a patient in this scenario, and that totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I yeah. just think I just think Joe that you know you, you should demand high standards on both sides. Mm, um, yeah, but it, it it should never be at the expense of, of the other person. Yeah, yeah. And you know mm. that patients, you know, doctors can't give everything. To everyone, um, n nor should they. Mm. And you know, patients are you know are as much in that relationship um, as they ever have been. And I think the doctor-patient relationship is changing a great deal. Yeah. And I think these are great questions that you're asking because I think this is a this is a working a work in progress. Yeah. And we're rebalancing exactly what this relationship is. And I think junior doctors are they care more about quality of life and sure. professional development mm -hmm. and you know the boom in doctor coaching talks to that right like they're looking yeah. for answers and they're looking for support outside of the traditional medical model and i think i think that's a great thing yeah yeah good right well let, let's round out with the question that i ask everybody thanks so much for your answers so far what is one self-care routine that you rarely miss i think um it's it's thinking time <laughs> I know, that sounds hey. really silly. It's just no, I love it. it. it I love a bit just, of thinking time. Keep it's going. Thinking, it's deliberate thinking. And I know that yeah. sounds really silly, but in the age of the goddamn telephone, um, the goddamn mobile phone, I'm showing my age by calling it a telephone. Um yep. and the, the mobile phone, it is so easy to just hum along and not actually think. Hmm. And I spend increasingly amounts of time with my phone away mm -hmm. and off because, you know, as much as you want to exercise your frontal lobe and say, well, I'm not going to look at the phone and I'm going to just sit it there and turn it upside down, it's, it is designed to draw all your attention all the time. Yeah. And I, self-care now for me is about putting that thing away, not that it, you know, it's, it causes me to stress or depression or anxiety. It's mm. just, it's such a nice break <laughs> when it's yeah. gone and I can just actually fully think about something and let thoughts bubble up mm. rather than being reactive, being proactive. Yeah, great. Yeah, sounds really good. Does that flow into journaling? Is that something you still choose to do at the moment or...? I intermittently uh, write. I don't have a regular practice at the moment, mm, yeah. um, but I definitely do intermittently write and I definitely do um, have a lot of ideas about things that I want to write and jot mm. down, jot down, you know, the start of that or, or something like that, a segment of that. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. And, I, and, you know, that's, that's, you can't do that without fully being in your own brain. Yeah. Um, so yeah. again, it just goes. The, the more that I put this phone down and step away from it, the more present I can be with myself and 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 the ideas that are yet to come. Yeah, brilliant. So good. 
So good. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time. I've got so much out of this discussion today. It feels very current. It feels very important and very insightful from what you shared. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap up um, the podcast today and tell people where they can find you? Um, no, I think, th thank you, Joe. I've absolutely loved our chat. Um, I think people like you are doing fantastic things for the field and I think um, there's a, the, the need is greater than ever. Uh, so the book, my book is available in most bookstores, uh, certainly available online. Um, for your international listeners, just this week it, it was um, launched in North America. Um, oh, it's currently Congrats. available um, in Europe and the UK, uh, South Africa and Asia. So, um, yeah, the, just if you type in Ben Bravery, um, it, it should come up. I've also got a website there and there's a form. People can contact me. People think I've got a whole team, Joe, but it's just me. Um, so if you, if you write on that form, that comes to my inbox and then I, I try to reply to every single person. Um, awesome. whether that's for advice or feedback on the book or how your experience differs from mine, I'm all ears. Well, Ben, take care of yourself. Um, it's really great to connect with you and um, I look forward to seeing how things develop for you over years to come. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Burnout Recovery Podcast. If there's someone in your world who would also benefit from this, please share it with them. Remember, you are not alone and there is hope for a brighter, more fulfilling future. Let's continue this journey together one episode at a time. For more resources, including how to move from dread to delight, head to drjoebraid.com.